to another episode of Trans Regret Snoopy Presents the Bible. I have a very special guest with me today, game developer and co-creator of the Anodyne series and Even the Ocean, Marina Ayano Kitaka. Welcome, Marina. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, we're going to talk today about some very dense and, and very interesting passages from 1 Samuel Um but before we do that, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself and how faith plays a part in your life? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm mainly a game developer currently as my kind of line of work, although uh, I sort of think of myself as just a artist in general. And lately I've been interested in doing more prose writing, so I'm kind of working on a novel a little bit. We'll see how that goes. And um, yeah, as far as faith, I was raised, um, I guess we went, grew up going to an evangelical free church was the denomination uh, for the most part, went to a few different churches, but that was the one that we settled at in Chicago. And um yeah, I was in some ways pretty, uh, pretty, our family was pretty embedded in um, the church and in faith, and that was a pretty big part of our lives. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was pretty intense to me, I think, growing up uh, in ways that I only realized later um, in, in certain ways as I grew up and gained context. Um, but it's also, yeah, it's hard to sum up because it's a really big thing. In some ways, like we seemed uh, like this kind of stereotype of a really intense evangelical family in terms of the, the things that we might say or believe. And like I was uh, homeschooled, which is a big thing mm -hmm. among evangelical Christians. Um kind of with this, a lot of the time there's this sense of like, oh, you know, you'll learn bad uh, secular stuff in the mainstream schools, so we got to keep you out. And I don't think that was really our angle. Like it was, it was close to a lot of these stereotypes, but then also really different feeling in the details, which is probably true of a lot of situations. Um, and also, like, when I think about those those uh, stereotypical images, those are, like, very, like, white people. And hmm. um, I definitely think that the way that my mom taught us was, uh, you know, in certain ways conservative, like, informed by the kind of mainstream Christian church values, but then in other ways informed by the fact that we were people of color and with an eye towards kind of the social justice aspects of Christianity. Um, and yeah, so I am no longer a Christian. I kind of in uh, 
college, I would say, like high school and college, as I like became an adult, I started to like have lots of like questions and complicated feelings and experiences um, and realized that it wasn't necessarily uh, for me anymore. Um, Mm. But yeah, I don't know. There's so many different ways to think about it and talk about it. (laughs) Yeah, I joke that asking that question at the outset of the episode is like the most unanswerable or most complicated question, I think, in most people's lives because even if you've separated yourself from practicing faith or uh, faith entirely, there usually is some kind of um, emotional, um, familial, or you know, otherwise important um, baggage that we carry with us every day. And uh, you know, in some ways, it informs our moral code, and it informs you know how we treat people, and it can be a positive guide for us in our lives. And in, in other ways, it can be a marker of trauma. It can be a marker of damage in our lives. It can be something that we carry with us as like a burden. And yeah. uh, and and in that way, I think it's a great question to open with because it's like. Uh, how do I answer this? But in many other ways, I think that it, um, it kind of shows that no matter where we come from, no matter what our background is, uh, religious, um, racial, uh, familial, whatever that may be, that we all have, a, a some sort of, um, connection to the eternal, in some way or another, uh, even if we didn't grow up in faith or if, if we don't identify it with it anymore, that um, there is uh, there is something that is coded in us that will always kind of be impressed on us, uh, it, even if it's not a belief in a God or, um, or Christianity or Judaism or whatever that may be. And so um, all the more, I think that it's, it's interesting that we chose this passage because it's difficult stuff. Um, mm. It's fascinating stuff. Anything involving Saul, I think, is really, um, Saul and, and Jonathan specifically is really troubling. It, Old, Testament, um, Old Testament writing has a lot of uh, brutality in it, has a lot of violence in it, um, more so obviously than the New Testament. I think a lot of people have this image of Jesus, at least until Revelation, as like this guy, this peace and love guy, um, like this really chill dude who just wants to be everybody's friend. But um, the um, the messages that people receive from prophets in the Old Testament tend to be those of uh, not just love and forgiveness and and uh, brotherhood or or family, but also that of uh, conquest or defense or battle or um, trouble. And you know in that way, we see in in this in this passage now we we kind of we're gonna cover a lot of ground here. Uh, we I think primarily are going to focus on first Samuel 14. But there's a little bit of background in 13 and a little bit of continuation into 15 that happens here. Uh, for some background on the passage itself, um, Saul is leading um, uh, an army at this point, though not super effectively at this particular juncture. Um, there is an 
an onslaught of Philistines who are threatening and and this sort of ongoing war. And in other places in Samuel, we see David fighting Goliath, uh, who was a Philistine as well. And so this was um, between the Israelites and the Philistines, this was a very, very long conflict and, and something that wasn't settled easily and isn't really even settled here. But this is an important battle and, and, and an important marker, I think, in Saul's, uh, ru- Saul's rule over, uh, over the Hebrews, over the Israelites. So just before we dive into the text proper, what fascinates you about this part of, of 1 Samuel? Yeah, um, well, I think when I, it first caught my eye just because I was um, paging through the NIV translation, which is the Bible that I physically own when I got in high school from my church. And um, I just saw the header, uh, Jonathan Eats Honey, and that's like a very um, evocative, like it's just instantly like catches your eye kind of as a strange <laughs> thing. Uh, but then it's ultimately it's about, it's about war and it's about these kind of strange curses and stuff like that. Um, and then as I looked around the, the passage, um, this kind of unfolds in this interesting way where I just really wanted to know kind of what the, the, the author, and I guess the author is Samuel, right? So I think it's, I think it's, it's written about Samuel. I don't know if the authorship is owed to Samuel necessarily. I think it's like following Samuel as a prophet through these stories of, of the kings and, and the armies of the Israelites at the time. Okay. I think I, I think I looked it up and it's like a lot of it is at least theoretically written by Samuel, but then maybe later parts are mm. random, but I mm-hmm. guess it's, it might be hard to know. But anyway, I, it did make me just wonder like what the, what the point of view or like what the subtext is of all these events, because there's so much to read into it, like almost like sarcastic undertones at, at parts, <laughs> or it's just like complicated to try to understand what's going on between Saul and Samuel and God, just in terms of, and Jonathan, in terms of you kind of expect going into a story like this, maybe if if the author was trying to say something specific about God or to just uh, express a factual series of events. Or if you picture like God kind of saying what, you know, because the, the Bible is considered the word of God. Mm. If you, if you are trying to picture it as like God telling you something straightforward, then it doesn't really make sense. And there's so much like backtracking kind of, and yeah. like people will say one thing, but then it just like won't work out that way. And then some something will just like change, even though they're like, this is this way. And so you you just, I, that's kind of what interested me about it was like how much it just like goes back and forth on itself. 
I think that Samuel's a really interesting prophet because he um, he he's kind of brutal. He he seems kind of mean. Uh, there's a lot of prophets that seem to more uh, to to lament and to to warn. And it almost seems like Samuel's ruling, like he's he's a judge of Israel. Like literally, that's what he's referred to. But that's what he he's not just saying, "Hey, you're doing this wrong," or um, or "Hey, you know, uh, you um, you've you've gone astray." But he, he's saying, like literally, this is what you're going to do. Do this now, and if you don't do it, there's actual ramifications to that. And and I, I joke that I have a heresy of the week on this show that I always say something that is going to to make someone upset. And, and I think my interpretation in, in a lot of Samuel's, uh, in a lot of, in first Samuel and second Samuel and, and some of the other prophets too, is that, uh, at this point in time, this is an, a warring tribe of people. And it's a, it's a large and very powerful warring tribe of people. And when we see difficult passages like this, uh, in 14, 13, 14, and 15, we see, uh, at times, it almost seems as though that the interpretation of the word of God or the um, the command of God seems suspiciously like the command of conquest. Uh, it seems suspiciously like God is calling um, uh, God is calling the Israelites to push forward in a, in a battle that um, may not necessarily be uh, be for defense. Although I think most people that interpret scripture um, from the Old Testament would say that, no, it's it's not that they're actively um, going out to harm people, but rather that they're defending their, um, their people, that they're defending uh, their nation. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot to Saul that is extremely relatable to people in that Saul doubts and Saul fails, and Saul loses. And um, there's even points at which, while Samuel never seems to lose um, lose his connection to God, Saul actively prays at, at a point in this, in this um, section that he never hears anything back. He just, he gets nothing. Uh, there's not a lot of points in the Bible where someone, they mention that someone goes to pray asks for an answer and gets nothing in return. And, um, and it's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's especially interesting to me in that way. Yeah. Cause that, that's relatable. <laughs> yeah. It, I mean, yeah, <laughs> to, I think, people, I think, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Christian or non-Christian or Jewish or non-Jewish, like it, it, I think anybody that, that has connected with scripture in any way would read that and go, Oh yeah, that's like most of the times that I pray. I just, I just don't really hear anything. And of course, I think a lot of people are programmed in in their um, church traditions, and this is a really toxic, I think, in my opinion, just like a really kind of toxic um, tradition, like a, a belief in these faith traditions that, well, if, if you're not hearing God, if you're not feeling that connection to God, then you're doing something wrong, that you've been removed from God and that God is r- removing God's self from you because of, of sins that you've committed or um, because you are do, you're praying wrong, you're not observing correctly. And, um, you know, in relation to where the, the Israelites would have been at this point in time, uh, it's, it was a very regimented 
um, observation of faith. There were sacrifices. There were rituals. There was a specific way that things were supposed to be done. And and Saul, of course, being proud in many ways, uh, takes it upon himself to like decide when or when when or when not he is going to uh, to to follow what he's supposed to to follow or do what he's supposed to do. And at other times, he seems to come up with these decrees and these commands that he's saying come from God and um, at the end in no way actually come from God. Uh, gosh, it's interesting. Should we just go right to the honey part? Because I think this is this to me is the, 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 the most interesting part of um, these chapters. Can, can I kind of like give maybe some concrete passages from 13 before we kind of move on? Yes, yes, of course. Um, yeah, because I, I'm actually very curious about the central question because I did um, sort of like you were describing, like when I grew up in the church, this image that we have of Saul is, is this kind of tragic uh, character who, you know, maybe does some good things, but overall... Um, is is this symbol of kind of like how not to be the symbol of pride and anger and insecurity and just this mismatch and kind of disconnect with God. Um, and I, so that's kind of like what my image in my head was going into this, but I couldn't help but feel uh, that... Like he's kind of being set up to fail. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, this gets into probably beyond the scope of these passages in terms of the whole situation where the Israelites wanted a king um, and it seems like God doesn't really want to give them a king, but then kind of settles (laughs) uh, because they just want it so much. Um, And so Sam, uh, Saul, you know, he's not a king in the way that we often think of other kings who are like, from long lines or these established power structures. He's just kind of this random guy uh, who is forced into this position that arguably God doesn't even want him to be in. And yet he has to sort of be the uh, representative of God to to the people and to the world. Um, and it seems like Samuel is also... Uh, uh, resentful about this in, in a sense, I don't know, like if Samuel were writing these parts and is kind of, or at least Samuel's point of view is exerting an influence over this story, then it's interesting that, you know, Samuel seems to like, God seems to kind of be like Samuel (laughs) in in these passages. Very interesting, isn't it? (laughs) They're they're both kind of, uh, resentful of the fact that uh, you know, like, what, we're not good enough for you, Israelites. You want this <laughs> other guy. Um, so to really get into what happens in 13, um, the first kind of big misstep that Saul makes is that uh, he, I'll just read from the NIV, uh, verse 8. He waited seven days' time, the time set by Samuel, But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. So he said, Bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he was making the offering, 
uh, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? Asked Samuel. Um, well, I'll, I'll end there, but basically Saul is like, oh, you know, everyone was running away and you didn't come when you said you would. So I figured I better do the offering to, to God before the Philistines attack us. Yeah. Um, but then Samuel says, uh, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. <laughs> but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. And I just think this part is very interesting because I did go back and look and there's like an earlier passage where Samuel says that he'll he'll meet uh, Saul there in seven days or whatever. So it is like set out specifically, this is how things are going to go. I'll meet you there and then we'll do the thing. But Samuel was late and we don't hear why he's late, but yeah, he shows of, up once, once like there's a moment of desperation and Saul makes a mistake is when Samuel goes, Hey, wait a second. Yeah. He shows up like <laughs> literally while he's finishing <laughs> The sacrifice to just, it's, it almost seems like he was like hiding behind a tree waiting for Saul to panic and do something wrong. And then he like pops out. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the mention of the, the Lord sat out a man after his own heart is obviously a reference to, if you know, other, other sections about King David is a reference to David. And, and David, of course, is like lionized um, intensely during this portion of the Old Testament. and. And there's almost this subtext that uh, Saul was the man that was established as the king because he had a connection with the people and the people did like him in a certain way. But there was almost this, uh, this subtext of Jonathan actually was better than Saul was the entire time, that his son was actually more deserving of this position, but either didn't express the interest or wasn't ready or didn't have that that, um, that connection. Uh, but yeah, it does, it does feel very much like Saul was there and, and he had to do it, uh, because there was no, there was nobody else that could have done it. Even though almost the whole time it feels like Samuel is like, well, maybe I should have been the one that was doing it. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we see, we see here that Saul is not exactly, um, he's not doing a great job. He's, he's, carrying on he's he's doing his best and and you know living through the last 30 years of modern american politicians i think we can we can relate to that in some way that we put our we put our stock in somebody because well this is the best that we can do right now and and inevitably those people fail right those those people always let us down there's i can't think of a single person that i've um, voted for in an elected office that is actually completed a task that I was, I was really hoping that they would. Um, but they're, they're in this difficult situation with the Philistines. And, and again, this is something that had been gone, that had been going on for a long time, that the people of Israel had been looking for a solution or had been looking to, to put an end to this, uh, this struggle between, between the people. So with that grounded, was there anything else that you wanted to bring in from uh, from 13. I think we can move on from now. Okay. So, so while this is happening with Saul and, and he's, he's sort of, 
uh, he, he's grasping to hold on to his people. Like he's, he's really, um, trying to make sure that his, his, um, his not hold over the people, but that his connection with, with his, his, his kingdom was solidified or at least strong enough that he could lead the, the army that he needed to lead and not lose the faith of his people. Um, meanwhile, Jonathan, who, who seems like kind of a loner, uh, he, he's, he goes off on his own quite a bit. Uh, he, he, as the son of Saul, I think is a little bit entitled. Um, he, he seems to be, um, a great warrior. He seems to be somebody who's not afraid of anything. Um, but he's also like kind of skirting the rules and not really, not really listening to what, what the, uh, the commands are from, from other places. Uh, Jonathan, the header in, in at the beginning of First uh, Samuel fourteen in the ESV is Jonathan defeats the Philistines, and we see here Jonathan is out alone essentially with his armor bearer, which is like a, it's like his heavy, right? How do you imagine like an armor bearer as a position? I, I was just kind of picturing like a almost like a bodyguard, which is funny for a warrior to have. Oh, interesting. I, I'm not sure what it was historically, but I was picturing more of like a squire kind of, like a, a, a kind of a little guy who like carries around heavy stuff for you so that you can, you know, have your optimal arrangement for the situation hmm. and, and be the more heroic kind of warrior doing more active stuff. I think historically that makes more sense. I'm not sure why in my head I went to that, but it was like, well, if this one's carrying all the heavy stuff, then that must be the actual, that must be the actual muscle, right? Uh, <laughs> that maybe Jonathan's the brains behind the operation. Um, but said, it, in six, it says Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that like young. I'm just picturing like little. Like an assistant, Squire. yeah, yeah, uh, someone who's who's not who's learning the ropes, but isn't isn't quite on Jonathan's level. Yeah, pain is dues. <laughs> <laughs> There's a beautiful image that's painted here, and if you if you Google, uh, and and you know, there's there's been a lot of paintings of this particular. Uh, section of pa- of of scripture um, that trying to create this image in people's minds. Uh, the Philistine garrison on the on the rocky uh, on the rocky passage here, and I'm going to start at fourteen uh, four. I'm in the ESV. Uh, the NIV and the ESV are very very similar. Um, in this passage, because I struggle a lot of times with the Old Testament in in truly understanding what's going on, I I defer to contemporary English versions a lot more to, to read through and get the real meaning. And then I try to familiarize myself with something that's a little more grounded. Um, and so I actually went to the message a lot more. And I, I made, I made fun of the message a lot on this show, actually. <laughs> uh, and I, I, in a way, I regret doing that because the more that I, I use that and the voice as a, um, as a reference, it really does help me understand the, mm. uh, the context and, and get a little bit more of a concrete sense in my mind in my, um, you know, uh, internet poisoned modern mind with zero, uh, you know, zero attention span and no ability to imagine a world outside (laughs) of my own to have somebody (laughs) explain this to me in a way that, that really makes sense. Um, but anyway, in, in 14.4, it goes, uh, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag 
on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bazez, and the name of the other was Senu. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said, that, okay, that was back where, in, where we landed in six. So we're picturing um, a pass. Uh, it's almost like an overpass. There's two rocky um, rock walls, essentially, two uh, arches uh, separated over an underpass, and, and on either side is one rock or the other rock. Uh, not exactly mountains, more, more like chunks of rock. Uh, and there's some beautiful, like I said, there's some beautiful, beautiful paintings of this. But uh, Jonathan is, is at the base of these and says, let's go up. Let's go see what's going on up there. And, you know, there's, there's this element of uh, oh, he and his armor bearer are going to go up there alone. There's a whole, um, I think a garrison is like 600 soldiers or something like that. I can't remember the exact number. It's not, a, it's not the entire army of the Philistines. It's just some of them that are in this particular area that they're talking about going up. But Jonathan's theory or his, his notion is like, let's just go up there and see what's going on. Did you find that odd at all? Yeah, no, it's it's um, wild because they have the high ground. Um, <laughs> it's dangerous. Like, it doesn't really make any sense. Um, and we'll get into kind of how they, how he ends up making this decision. Is this the part where he does the... No. There's a part later where he kind of, like, flips a coin or... What, he does some kind of, like, test of God. Oh, they, um... This that's with Saul where they draw where they um they not they oh, don't draw straws. Another, what do they call it? <laughs> Drawing lots or something like that. There's another part where Jonathan decides to do something based on Oh, in verse eight. Uh oh yeah, depending on how they respond, he decides whether they'll go and fight them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So if we go up there and they say, come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. It's That's kind like, of this like Gideon-esque, like, it, it, it's just like a code to like blink twice, God, if you want us to fight, kind of. <laughs> and that's, that's so consistent with the way that like war is... Uh, is that the way they do war in this time is we're waiting for a sign from God. And then it's almost like literally anything could be a sign from God, right? There's, they're just like looking for any sign from God. It's how we, I think in, in today's world where we feel so disconnected from the spiritual or the eternal or whatever, it's like people that are religious now will look for any and every sign that they've made some kind of connection with God. So this is where we get, uh, you know, uh, random miracles that pop up in, in random places that maybe are not figments of our imagination, but uh, might just be coincidences or unusual occurrences. I'm not saying that miracles don't happen today. I'm just saying that uh, a lot of us are kind of just looking for looking for something. And I understand that urge. I mean, I totally do, because it's like, you know, when when one is trying to connect with the eternal, when one is trying to make a spiritual connection with God, you really want an answer. You really want something that's gonna that's gonna help you out. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's like like the thing that I always think of is um, 
like when my mom would, uh, you know, be pondering something in life and then would like hear something on the radio that's like speaks to that directly or something and then be like, whoa, you know, it's God. And I'm like, (laughs) it kind of is like, I mean, it's, it is like, you can't really say that it is or isn't like the way that that's just like the way that the human mind works. Like when, when you're thinking about something, you're primed to notice things that relate to it. Um, just psychologically, mm. but also like just because that's how the human mind works. Like, like maybe it works that way for a reason. But it's like a it's a strange and uh, and floaty topic. But I I think it is interesting that that's how people's minds work, and that's how a lot of like ideas are formed, or senses of inspiration, or senses of. Um, of kind of the world making sense or moving in a certain direction. Um, but I think it's, yeah, I think it's a complicated thing to interpret as as a human because if you overemphasize the sort of meaningfulness of the way that your own interior mind works, then mm. you might kind of trample over the larger context or other people's experiences or realities. Um, but at the same time, like that's just how brains work. And and we have to flow with that in some way and it's valuable and it has power. Um, so it's, it's an interesting topic. And I do think like when you're fighting hand to hand directly, like, like, you know, this isn't like sitting in a, uh, base and like piloting a drone strike with an Xbox controller from a million miles away. Like, (laughs) like your, the exact nuances of your confidence that like micro moments will have this huge impact on whether you succeed or not. And so it totally makes sense to be like, I need some kind of sign and it'll be anything, but it'll like make my brain work good when I fight. Yeah. It's an odd form of almost confirmation bias or something like that where, um, and it can be so twisted in a lot of ways. Like, uh, okay, God, if I go up to this guy and I punch him and he punches me back, then he wants to, (laughs) then this is my (laughs) sign. (laughs) So it's like, it can be twisted in so many ways that are just really like, well, you know, that was going to happen anyway. But sure, if you want to take that as a sign from God, you were going to do it anyway. Like this, it almost seems like, well, this was Jonathan's plan to start. And, And his poor armor bearer, I want to bring this up too, because I think Jonathan's a really fascinating character and one that um, those that uh, ascribe to a kind of queer theology or try to interpret um, scripture from a queer lens will look at Jonathan and David and and see the sort of uh, homo-social or uh, somewhat kind of homoerotic tendencies between the two of them as as sort of a sign that there was a connection, an intimate connection between these two. But Jonathan has a kind of connection with like that with his armor bearer. In verse 7, his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart, do as you wish. Behold, I'm with you, heart and soul. Uh, he's devoting himself to Jonathan. Like, okay, dude, like whatever you want to do, like I am with you. I will never leave your side. 
you know, I, I support you and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm wholeheartedly behind you. And I think it's like a really beautiful form of devotion to Jonathan, however foolhardy it may be. Uh, in this case, it works out in his favor. But you see Jonathan, he must have been a very charming man because he yeah. does create these kinds of connections with people in other places in the Bible. Yeah. But um, lo and behold, uh, Jonathan goes up and uh, they, they, they crawl. There's this image that they, they use here that's really beautiful that he goes up on his, on his hands and knees. What's the exact phrase there? Um, uh, okay. Oh, then it's Jonathan, 13, yeah. yeah. 13. You can read it if you want. Okay. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed them after him. Uh, the first strike with Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men. So the two of them go up to an, an army or a, um, you know, sort of a battalion that have the high ground and they manage to just go up there and slay 20 men. Um, and Jonathan doesn't do it alone. They make mention that the armor bearer was, was not simply handing Jonathan the sword and saying, go after it, dude. He was actively battling alongside Jonathan and they killed 20 men, which is, um, obviously quite a task. Uh, it's very impressive and, and, uh, you know, it, it's consistent with how Jonathan is portrayed in, in the rest of the Bible where he is, you know, he's a, he's a great warrior. He is, um, again, kind of, kind of better than his dad at all of this. Like his dad is a general and, and he's kind of a bumbling general and he doesn't always do all that well. Not a total failure, um, but, you know, human and flawed, just like we all are. And, but Jonathan has, seems to have this divine uh, support behind him. How else would two people kill 20 men um, against, a, against a hostile force that has the high ground? Yeah, it's um, just kind of unbelievable. Like, especially the sense, like when you when you picture getting up on your hands and knees at like the top of this kind of like rocky outcropping, like wearing armor, like that's just prime getting killed time. Like, how do you not get killed? <laughs> but yeah, it's wild, and I, I do like that imagery that it that it describes of Jonathan like knocking people down, and then the armor bearer kind of like falling up and just like stabbing them, make sure they're dead. <laughs> I, I do like think about this with you know like action movies where they just kind of magically know like the state of the fallen like enemies, where either like okay, I know they're dead, so I don't need to keep looking behind me, or <laughs> I know they're knocked out because this is like a PG movie and they're they're knocked out just the right amount so that they they're won't wake incapacitated, up in this scene. But, but, I, <laughs> but I haven't murdered them. I'm not a murderer. <laughs> so they imply in 15 that they didn't kill everybody, but it was a scary enough occurrence that there was a panic in the camp um, of the Philistines and that um, people started to kind of, uh, kind of stray and that there was an actual earthquake how did you interpret that? Because I was trying to imagine, like, what was the was the earth quaking below them because everyone got so panicked and they were all running and and this was like a high rock area, so it was probably somewhat unstable, and and so they were, you know, and everybody running and grabbing their stuff and moving around, they were shaking the earth, or was this like God, like moving the earth underneath them? Um, 
I, I think it's it's more God moving the earth through them running around kind of in panicking. Hmm. Um, the NIV says, then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, earthquake does, does imply this kind of geological function, but um, I think it's maybe just them running around. The, uh, the ESV footnote at the end of a very great panic is, or became a panic from God. So I think you're right. I think there was, they were, um, that uh, Jonathan did what Jonathan did, but God whipped up a frenzy uh, that made them mad and made them, um, made them go into a panic. Uh, meanwhile, <laughs> Saul is, uh, Saul is somewhere else, right? So Saul doesn't know that this is all happening. Yeah. Jonathan went off without telling him. And, and Saul says, oh, what's going on here? Let's see who's all here and who's not here. Like he's doing a head count. Uh, to see if anyone had deserted or uh, if anyone was there. And it turns out Jonathan and his armor bearer weren't there. So uh, at verse 18, it says, So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul says, so this is when Saul becomes aware of it. He that they like hear the panic or they, they sense the quake. Mm. Uh, Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Uh, and then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. So they, they hear what Jonathan has done. They experience like this, the, they, they feel the frenzy and then they're all like, let's go do this too. And, mm. and, and, and in, in joining with this attack, they make a very, um, a very profound impact against the Philistines. And, and it looks like they've, I don't know how many, it was, it was such an, uh, such an impressive showing by the Israelites that some of the men who had joined the Philistines actually left and joined back with the Israelites. Is that, is that right? Is that how you read that? I think, I think there were, um, so the Israelites, uh, before the events that we've described were starting to scatter. That that was goes back to Saul getting worried and doing the sacrifice because Samuel wasn't coming. And so there were there were Israelites who were kind of with his army, but they were like, I don't like how this is going. I'm gonna go hide in the wilderness, kind of. Oh, okay. So it wasn't defectors. It was it was more I, yeah, just was, people who had left and and now that they see that there's actually some success going on, that they come back out of the wilderness and they're like, Yeah, let's do this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I can I can relate to that in a way. You yeah, put yourself you in harm's way for long enough. Be on the winning team when it's happening. <laughs> uh, yeah, so they um, there's this this great uh, this great battle, and uh, and the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed between Beth Aven. So Saul then makes an odd move. What did you make of his call in twenty four? to say that after, so because of this, after, after um, the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, "'Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies.'" Is that because the, the battle hadn't ended yet, or he was like waiting for more strife, waiting for more struggle? 
I really, I don't know why he makes this oath. And I also thought it was strange. Um, the difference between the NIV and the ESV, one says the Israelites were in distress because he had bound the oath is NIV. And then in ESV, it says the men of Israel had been hard pressed. So he laid the oath, which is completely different meaning. Um, in, in some sense, Saul, they're starting to have the success and he wants to, I guess, he wants to find some kind of completeness. He wants to win bigger, I guess, mm-hmm. because they're already sort of succeeding. Um, and so it's unclear to me why he curses any man who eats food until it's evening and he's avenged on his enemies. The... Um, the message has a really funny translation at 24. It says, Saul did something really foolish that day. He addressed <laughs> the army, a curse on the man who eats anything before evening, before I've wreaked vengeance on my enemies. None of them ate a thing all day. Uh, obviously editorializing a little bit, but I think that that's kind of the implication is that Saul makes this decree as though it was coming from the Lord, like he doesn't have the right or the power to curse anyone. Uh, mm-hmm. Curses, blessings only come from the divine. It doesn't come from Saul. So, you know, where he's getting this is anybody's guess. There's no, there's no, there's no note here that he was told this by God. That God was like, nobody, nobody do anything. Uh, we're going to yeah. finish this out, and then we can all feast. Uh, so I found it so strange that this is Saul. Like he, I think it's him trying to create, I don't know, in my mind, it was him trying to create like a unified uh, strife. Like if everyone's hungry, we're all going to really want to finish this. We're all going to really want to end this battle and we're going to fight extra hard so that we can get something to eat. Uh, And and I think anybody that's done any, uh, anything physically exerting would know that that's a terrible idea. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) It's very counterintuitive to to want to have strength, but to not eat. I was reading a um, a Torah analysis from a Jewish source um, about this passage, and it um, it had a fascinating bit in it about how leaders um, how leaders bring uh, bring sort of like. Uh, torture and, and, and bad things upon their own people. Mm-hmm. And, and it kind of turned its, its gaze towards the Christian church, which I thought was really interesting. This is coming from a Jewish source. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it says, a Christian leadership uh, often has no fear of creating self-serving doctrines and then attaching the Lord's name to them. On the other hand, the modern Christian congregation feels no obligation to seriously examine God's word and, and compare it to our leader's proclamations. Rather, assume that if a man of the cloth says it, there's no obligation to do anything but to believe it and accept it as truth. Um, mm. If we're given false information and we decide to live by it, it's his sin and not ours uh, that he will bear the consequences and not us. I just thought that was so interesting. It's like, uh, it, was, it was more even-handed, I think, than that particular passage uh, leads on. But it does imply that like, uh, there is, and this is not unique to Christianity, Genuinely, and and I don't want to stray too far from the text, but I, I I think that there is 
uh, a reflection of Saul in every modern church, in every religion, in every denomination. Uh, the second that we uh, allow too much agency, allow too much power and, and too much direction from an individual person, we start to see that individual person say, well, this is the way it is because God says this is the way that it is. Uh, it creates way too much potential for someone to make a stupid mistake like this and just say, well, well, I think this is the way that it should be. So that's the way that it should be. Yeah. And even worse that they put God's name on it. And now that I'm thinking about it, like this actually is uh, like cult leaders uh, yes. kind of keep <laughs> their their flock kind of physically messed up so that they're feel more reliant or feel kind of confused and and need to like have this singular focus on what the leader is saying kind of yeah and and no matter how irrational the the command is that when someone is placed in that position of ultimate leadership that people just go well Saul said it so I guess this is what we're going to do yeah the image when they walk when the army walks into the forest is so fascinating to me. Yeah. Um, there's honey dripping, uh, and there's honey all over the ground, and there's it's like this this uh, incredibly fertile area that they're suddenly in where before they seem to be fighting on this sort of like desert, rocky land. They're suddenly in this area where there's nothing but food for these people to eat yeah. after they've been told specifically that they cannot eat it. Yeah, it's... I mean, it, 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 it is like you want to picture something that's probably unrealistic in terms of how much honey just there is dripping <laughs> everywhere. Um, it's, it's a little bit like, um, you know, like a cartoon when someone's stranded on a desert island and then they see their friend and their friend looks like a, like a, like a ham or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're just picturing them extra honey. And so maybe like whenever there is a honeycomb or whatever they're they're hyper attuned to it yeah it's almost like you're getting this image not from necessarily a um like anything in the bible like like from an objective reality but you're seeing it through the eyes of the hungry soldiers that they walk into this forest and suddenly it's like i could eat anything here right now this this all looks incredible it all looks sweet and delicious and and nutritious and amazing and this is what i want and of course jonathan who hadn't yet heard what saul said says uh sees all of this going on while all the soldiers around are are um starving and and going gosh i really wish i could have that honey jonathan just takes his staff Actually, kind of. Do do you want to read what the NIV says in this? Because sometimes with the with the visual language like this, the NIV is a little bit better. Do you want to read, um, say, twenty six through twenty seven? Sure. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out. Yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. What an image. Yeah. I, I, I love, they like use this phrase multiple times of his eyes brightening. And it's just like this really intense imagery that you know exactly what it means. And the dipping the staff into the honey, it's um, very sensory. 
it's so rich. And there's almost this, I mean, at the risk of, of like overstretching this metaphor, him dipping his staff in the honey and licking it off is like, it's again, kind of this weirdly homoerotic thing that Jonathan is doing. And, yeah. and, and it's almost like a power up for him that there's all of these um, downtrodden people who are mal- malnourished and um, who are, you know, trying to fight this battle. And, and he just, he dives right into that sweetness and, and immediately he's like enlivened and enriched again and his blood sugar's back which is exactly what actually happened to him in that moment. And he's ready to fight. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this whole series of events is very strange to me because right after he eats it, one of the soldiers is like, uh, your father said that we can't do that and you're cursed. And I'm like, <laughs> so everyone knows but him. And they're all just like, you know, watching him do it. And then right, I mean, maybe he did it fast, but... It's just strange how these sequence of events uh, have these domino effects that seem weirdly precise. Like it, it kind of reminds me of how Samuel arrives right after Saul makes his mistake, and mm-hmm. then someone says, "Oh, you can't eat honey right after Jonathan eats honey." But like the strange thing is that Jonathan just sort of seems to kind of just matrix bullet time dodge any like negative consequences which we'll get into more but whereas whereas Saul you know it's like he's matrix dodging but into the bullets <laughs> um, and and it's like yeah I mean it gets back to this greater narrative that I brought up earlier where I'm just like it kind of seems like God's just decided what he wants to happen and some people just get to do whatever they want and they're fine. And some people, you know, try and struggle and fret and whatever they do there. Just It is really <laughs> weird that they seem to just watch him do it. I mean, maybe not, but that is, it, it does seem like, hey, like they don't say, hey, don't do that. They're like, dude, you shouldn't have done that, which yeah. seems so like too late. Why didn't you tell me this before? Um but then also, this is the same group of people that that bargain for him to not be killed, right? Uh, yeah. Later on, and I'm trying to see, trying to remember where that was. That's further on in 14, I believe. Yeah, uh, 45, verse 45. Yeah, so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Uh, there's a little bit that goes on between here and there, so I, I don't want to skip too far ahead. But this is like the same people that were like, uh, not stopping him from doing something that he actively shouldn't have done. Uh, they go from that to saying, no, don't kill him. No, <laughs> he didn't, he didn't really do anything wrong. He did, he did something wrong, but he, you know, he's repentant or he's, um, the, uh, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so strange. Yeah. But they, they win all the same, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's so strange. Should we mention briefly, uh, this part where they're also eating blood? Yes. Um, I really want to get into that too, because we had this visceral, um, tactile, uh, image of Jonathan eating the honey and, and the soldiers who say you shouldn't have done that. You're cursed now for having done that. Um, and, and Jonathan being, you know, enriched by by this thing that he shouldn't supposedly shouldn't have done, uh, but the malnourished 
army goes forth and defeats the Philistines. And uh, it's 32. They, uh, in the ESV, it says, the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Uh, eating them with the blood, I think, implies that they're literally just cutting these animals open and eating them raw. Yeah. That's intense. These are people that are so hungry, they're willing to cut into an animal and just take a bite out of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I was wondering if this um, had also to do with um, specific uh, commandments that are listed elsewhere. Because I know like in the Old Testament, there's like whole lists of specific laws that are based on uh, different things related to like health and but I don't know if, um, I don't know that much about like butchery, but if there's a way where, you know, like proper drainage mes- methods, but like some people cook the meat without properly draining or something like that. I don't know if it's referring to something. It is definitely um, a, a law to them to not do this. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a lot of the... Um, the laws in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, while a lot of people see them as like, why would anyone, why would that be a rule for anyone? What this is, why would this have ever been a rule? A lot of these were established out of a necessity for, for health and cleanliness. Um, while it seems to us like this is like this repressive regime of, of, of rules that, that people can't, you know, do certain things. It's usually, usually there was a reason behind it. It wasn't just because, you know, God said not to, uh, not to eat shellfish. It's because people were probably getting more sick more often because they were eating shellfish. Yeah. Uh, I absolutely love the message on this passage as well. Uh, uh, they killed the Philistines that day all the way from McMash to, um, Aijalon. but the soldiers ended up totally exhausted. Then they started plundering. They grabbed anything in sight, sheep, cattle, calves, and butchered it where they found it. Then they glutted themselves. Meat, blood, the works. <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, I, I guess like, so this is implied maybe to be after sundown because it seems like the, the issue here is that they're eating the blood, not the, the earlier oath curse. Yeah, I, this isn't. Yeah, this isn't have to do. I think specifically with them eating anything, right? They've they've already yeah. they've already completed their battle. Then and Saul says that nobody eat until we've vanquished the enemies. I don't think that's the exact phrase that he used, but that was the the implied phrase. But now that yeah. they have, um, now that they have defeated the Philistines in this battle, they they go. And, and then break another rule. It's like they've done something else wrong <laughs> <laughs> in trying to sate themselves, ha- having been so hungry. They then yeah. sin again, or they then curse themselves again. It's it's so strange. It is strange. And again, points to, I think, the foolishness of Saul's decree in the first place was that um, had you not, you know, had you not said that they couldn't eat anything before, then once they're able to actually eat something, they probably wouldn't have gone and and, and eaten raw animal meat without draining it and, and, you know, either cooking it or curing it properly. Yeah. This is maybe reading too much into it, but I'm, I'm curious if like, 
part of me could see them letting Jonathan eat the honey so that he's done like the bigger, more specific wrong. And then they get to like, you feel like they're a little looser because uh, he's maybe going to, that's going to come up first, maybe. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) That's so funny. It's like my modern hygienic sensibilities are like, the honey, who cares? But like, <laughs> ew, like don't don't just like cut an animal open. <laughs> but I think well, in, yeah. you're, what you what you're saying is absolutely right. I think that is what their what their minds were at. What's uh, uh, that? What Jonathan did was really bad because they disobeyed Saul's specific command. Whereas what we're doing is just kind of like a thing that that the law, you know, the the many many laws that we're supposed to live by say is icky or bad or or, or wrong. Yeah. So Saul says, like, stop doing that. Just bring all this stuff, and uh, and we'll do this properly. Uh, and then Saul builds an altar. And this is an important note. is the first altar that he built to the Lord. Um, altar building is not an uncommon thing for for these people, right? They, if they're nomadic or they're, they're um, going from area to area in order to worship or make sacrifices, they'd need to build an altar. It's only now where Saul builds his first altar. I think that's really interesting. And it's after there's been so many mistakes made, after there's been so many things that have gone wrong. Um, And then this kind of segues into uh, Saul um, wanting to pray to God to see if they should continue kind of chasing the Philistines throughout the night and plundering um, and really wiping them out. But then... As we mentioned earlier, Saul asks God about it, but God does not answer whether they should go and pursue the Philistines or not. This is what, yeah, this is what we were referring to earlier on. And I think the passage is in uh, 37. Saul inquired of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Silence, radio silence from God, which... If I were a king and I were drawing, you know, uh, drawing these armies into battle in order to um, to pursue this war that we believe is like God ordained, if I got nothing from God, I would turn around. I think I'd be like, okay, we're done here. Uh, yeah, whatever it like was, we did. No is wrong. answer is an answer sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but this is this is how we get into. Saul believing that, you know, his his oath had been broken. I think that's why he thinks that there's no answer. Mm-hmm. And so we get into casting lots and trying to figure out, oh, who did something wrong? Um, he, he, he is like grasping at straws for like what could possibly be. Like what, what, what would it be that, uh, you know, what reason would it be that God wouldn't be answering me here? And somebody must have done something wrong. And, uh, and, and he's like, okay, well, Jonathan, come here. It's got to be one of us. Uh, and, of course, Jonathan draws the, uh, what, is, what is the phrase that they use? Cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan, and Jonathan yeah. was taken. So, by the way, the, the implied result of the casting lots is that God makes the result of this, what's essentially like a, what becomes like a game, I think, later yeah. on, <laughs> is casting lots, right? Yeah, yeah, they they're, they use it for gambling over 
Jesus's clothes. Yes. Fascinating detail, actually. Yeah, I wonder if there was like a, a sharp, or I wonder if it, you know, was still also used for like kind of augury at that point, or if it sort of transformed over time into something. I, I, are, are there equivalent things today? Are there any uh, games at the casino that are kind of uh, used to be a religious practice, wow. sacred practice? <laughs> Um, wow, I don't, uh, I don't know, but that's a fascinating question. I mean, uh, I, I assume that the uh, that the slot machines have nothing to do with the ancient church, but there's uh, yeah, there's there's definitely this this odd transformation of the result of this casting lots in this context is asking God for an answer, like playing a Ouija board or something, laying tarot cards. Yeah. Uh, that then becomes like a um, a game or or a form of gambling. Uh, it's, it's so, so, I mean, even when it became a form of gambling, did people then also believe, okay, well, I was the one that was supposed to, when God said I was the one that wins the gambling. So this is the result that we're supposed to get. I mean, I do think that's part of the allure of gambling is, is just this sense of forces greater than you, uh, coming kind of like this flow coming towards you or against you and the sense that when something good happens, you're like, oh, like there's something in the air, there's something in the world, maybe it's God or the universe. So I do think those, even though it's easy to feel like those concepts are distant and one is sacred and one is profane, like they're they're very closely related. There's absolutely still that level of superstition that we refer to as superstition now but would have been, I think, referred to as a form of spirituality then. That, you know, people who gamble now uh, do it and and they go to the they go to one table and and then if there isn't the right you know, number of signs or their first three hands don't go the way that they want it to, they move on to the next or they, they go home for the night because it's not their day. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's so interesting that we, we view that as this kind of like, oh, that's just a goofy superstition. That's just something that uh, from people that uh, don't, you know, don't really understand, you know, they don't understand how yeah. the world really works or something. Yeah. But it's so powerful. Like, I think we've all felt that. Like, um, I remember uh, we, we used to play uh, carpet ball at church. Did you ever do that? <laughs> Mm, it sounds familiar, but I can't. I can't place it. It's like uh, you play with billiard balls, kind of, and they're on this carpet-lined uh, play field, and you stand at either end and try to knock the other person's down by throwing a ball. Mm. Um, and so this was a big thing at my church, and also like at other like Christian uh, camps that I went to, like summer camps and stuff, and. People would, you know, people would have their way that they like blow on the ball or roll it between their hands, and and like it, it's like impossible. I feel like not to like be drawn to do those kinds of things as a person. And um, yeah, I yeah, mean, it's, it's I think in our mind that is how our minds work, though, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, that is um, it's so, and that's what they depend. That's what they're going to determine Jonathan's life with here. And, and, and so Jonathan um, is drawn in this lot, or Jonathan was taken, and Jonathan admits, uh, I tasted a little bit of the honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And it's, I think this is like kind of a noble thing, but kind of silly too. Like, why would you allow what, something that's, that feels so 
so minor to be like, yeah, fine. That's what I did. Go ahead. Kill me. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of nuance to this statement that's probably that's kind of like lost to time. Like you can't know unless you were there, sort of how he said it. In the NIV, it's translated very differently. I noticed this. Uh, he says, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff and now I must die with an exclamation point. And it almost like to me, it just sounded sarcastic. Like, really? Um, yeah. but, <laughs> so but, I tasted some honey and now you're going to kill me. Is that really what's going Or perhaps like a on? challenge, like, you know, like <laughs> you're really going to do this. Like, I don't, I don't think you will. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really hard to tell what Jonathan's tone kind of would have been in that moment. Yeah. There's, um, there's sort of two ways to interpret that is I, I'll die or I'm going to die. Like, you know, I mean, yeah. I'm either accepting this or I'm going, this is, um, this is this is ridiculous. The, the the punishment does not fit the crime here. Yeah. Especially given the leadership that he was or the lack of leadership that he was dealing with. And uh, and Saul says, well, God would have done the same thing to me. So, sure, that's what's going to happen to you. And uh, and the people are are almost pleading with Saul here. Right. They're saying uh, like, like, don't. This shouldn't be, this isn't the way that it needs to go. And they convince Saul not to kill Jonathan in this moment. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many cases we see, and I, I probably shouldn't even bring this topic up until I, I know what I'm actually talking about here, but how many cases do we see of Saul actually killing, like uh, executing someone like this? We get, we get something from Samuel in 15 that is, that's pretty intense, but, um, mm-hmm. But it almost seems like Saul is like wavering. He knows that this is what supposedly what the lots say. So this is what what's supposed to happen. This is what God wants. But he's almost like waiting for someone to convince him otherwise. Yeah, and he's digging himself a deeper hole the whole time because he says, "May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan." <laughs> and it, it, it's just like, yeah, everything is a misstep in terms of. Like every every way that he tries to insert his, assert his own integrity and like strength and power is just like always ends up backfiring. Mm-hmm. And and there is this um, this section um, in, in in well in verse fifty two there is an interesting line. It says there is hard fighting against the Philistines. All the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. The language there makes Saul almost seem like parasitic, or or like he's saying, "Well, I can't do this on my own. So you come and join me. You come and join me. You come and join me." Like anybody who's going to make my army stronger or make me look better, then you you're going to be my right hand man, and. Uh, and I mean, he does that with Jonathan in a way, but Jonathan's already his son, so he doesn't really have to convince him to come with him. But Saul seems to always be on the hunt for someone that's going to see his 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 foolhardy plans through, or at least help him succeed in ways that he wouldn't have otherwise been able to succeed himself. Yeah. And I think this is an interesting part because... Uh, well, one, first off, I find it strange that the lot 
picks Jonathan in the sense that we're, we're to assume kind of that God is saying, okay, Jonathan was the one who broke the oath. But why, uh, at the same time, we, we kind of feel like that Saul was going rogue and didn't necessarily have the authority of God when making the oath. And so it's strange that it like, you're just trying to figure out here what exactly is God in relation to these people. It's strange that God kind of signals out, singles out Jonathan as the one who broke the oath, but then also Jonathan doesn't die and it's kind of just fine. It's sort of like there's this there's all these different powers between kind of the powers of the people collectively, the power uh, vested in Samuel or uh, Saul as as a prophet or a king, and then and then God's power. And it's strange that these different forces feel like they're vying yeah. for for kind of what seem what is common sense in this situation, what seems right or what seems just. And it's strange to think of God as like one of many forces that is like swirling around and not just like, well, God is going to, you know, come up with this straightforward story and then enact it through the people, you know? Yeah. Who's, who's determining the outcome. If, if, if God is um, all powerful, all knowing, omniscient, omnipotent, uh, if God really wanted to kill Jonathan, Jonathan would have been poisoned by the honey, right? Like there, there is the implication that, you know, that there's God again. I, I feel like there's all these little. We have to read between the lines so many different times here. Uh, that you know, none of this really was sanctioned by God. Sure, the the, the battle between the Israelites and the Philistines was 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 um, was okay with God because the Israelites were the chosen people, and that's just how things were then. But this decree, this this curse that Saul puts on someone that that eats during that day just seems so foolish and so goofy uh, when you when you look at the results, the outcome of the battle, and then what happens, the you know, the ensuing slaughter afterwards. Uh, it really makes Saul look like a like a doofus, uh, or worse, like a malicious, like selfish, um, manipulative leader who who is unseated. At uh, at fi- in fifteen in chapter fifteen, um, Saul. We don't. I really wish that we had more time. I, I don't want to wrap up too quickly, but fifteen is a really fascinating and very dense and very intense uh, chapter, wherein Saul is called to bring the Israelites uh, to the tribe of the Amalekites, and the Amalekites. Um, the battle between the Israelites and the Amalekites dates back to Abraham, I believe, and mm. and is a, a very ancient kind of rivalry or battle between these two tribes. And God supposedly calls Saul to destroy the Amalekites. And even in this, Saul fails. Uh, Saul doesn't destroy everything in the town. He he saves the king for some reason, and then he saves their their plunder, their treasure, their livestock, and in a, this selfish way, because he thought it was, well, this is useful stuff to us. This is going to help us. But God said what God said, and um, at the end of 15, Samuel comes and kills, not just kills, dismembers the king that Saul saves from the tribe of the Amalekites, uh, and, and then Saul is 
uh, is um, unseated from his, his position as, as king of the Israelites. Um, so it's a long time coming, right? We, we kind of see this like you brought up from, from the sections in 13. It seems like Saul's kind of set up to fail, but he kind of fails himself too. He doesn't, he doesn't really do what he says or what he's supposed to do. And he says these things that he's not really supposed to say. He's, um, he's a fascinating figure and I guess he's, he's broken like we all are. So <laughs> yeah, I sense. mean, that's really what, um, stood out to me in reading this. And like, <laughs> one of my notes was like team Saul question mark. Cause I was just like, <laughs> it just seems so like unfair to me in the sense that, uh, well, I guess what I was, what I was like feeling for him was, Yes, he does all these things that like don't make sense and that are like kind of scrambling to display some kind of power or control that he doesn't really have. Um, and yet, I don't know, I think it's just you, the experience of being a loser versus a winner is like very <laughs> different. <laughs> and And even though like, I mean, I don't know, like I definitely in some ways feel more like a Jonathan or a David type figure than a Saul type figure. Um, because I don't usually feel like everything's conspiring against me, but, but like if I did, like then I would struggle more and do more confusing things because like, I just feel like what else are you going to do? You like have to try things if if things aren't just going to like automatically go your way because you're so charming or you're so beautiful or <laughs> God loves you so much and people love you so much, then that's kind of like, you know, one of these like classic stories about humanity is uh, just how easy it is when everything goes your way. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and struggle, Jonathan yeah. is protected from, I think, this fall. Saul has this dramatic... I, I, or I guess it's sort of this gradual build towards his fall as king, where he's making mistakes, but he's, but he succeeds in this battle and he succeeds in this battle. And, you know, he's not failing as a king necessarily, but he's failing God because he's not doing what God is, you know, saying that he should do. And, uh, and David, who is, who is the, um, the successor to Saul has a similar trajectory. He is lionized. He is a great king. He is a man after God's own heart, as they say over and over and over again. But eventually he falls into the worst kinds of sin. And, uh, and, and Jonathan dies young. So he's protected. Yeah. He's like, he's guarded from this, this idea that, um, that, that we all know if you live life for any extended period of time, you know that you fail and that you make mistakes and that you, you bumble to try to come up with a an explanation or, or a solution in problems where you don't feel like that you are capable of solving them. And, um, gosh, it's so challenging. It's like, I, I want to like condescend on Saul and be like, Saul, you big dummy. But like, what? (laughs) I wouldn't do any better. Yeah. Certainly not. Team Saul, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, yeah, I, it was funny because I, I read two different, I like Googled parts of the passage and I read two like really different um, kind of takes on uh, some of this early stuff, particularly with the like Samuel coming late and Saul deciding to do the sacrifice at the beginning of 13. Mm-hmm. And one person just 
did the thing that I like heard all growing up, which is like, oh, Saul is the avatar of pride and foolishness. And then someone else was like, well, you know, it was really, it was hard. It was a hard decision, you know? Yeah. You're, you're afraid people are leaving the army. It's, it's complicated. Yeah. Circling back to what I mentioned like earlier on when we were talking about how politicians fail us. It's like, they probably do the best that they can. Some of them are malicious and some of them are liars or whatever, but ultimately most people that are put in positions of power like this don't screw up because they are going, I'm going to screw this person over. or I'm part of some conspiracy to, to consolidate power or whatever. It's that I'm going to do the best that I can, but I'm, I'm an idiot. Like we all are. I'm, <laughs> I'm selfish or I'm insecure or I lack, uh, you know, foresight. And, um, I eventually, screw something up and I, I regret doing what I did. It's, it's so interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, I think with, I think with like political elites, there's a lot of systems that they're, they're not really made to go in certain ways that are good. <laughs> they're just, so any individual person has kind of had to make a lot of compromises to get to that point in the first yeah. place, or it's just coming from a place of not knowing that much about the average human experience. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, um, any closing thoughts about these passages? I, I feel like this was a really good conversation. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, this was really cool. Uh, I, I think that's a good, good point to wrap it up. Um, do you have any plugs? Do you want to mention any projects or any socials? Uh, sure. Um, I'm on... Twitter mostly Marina Ayano uh, at even underscore K E I even K and uh, in a month or two I'm finishing up and releasing a game with my friend Melos Hontani uh, called Stephanie and it's a pretty cool game where you explore a cave system and meet lots of fantastical species and uh, yeah. That sounds fun. I'm so glad that we connected. Thank you again for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, this week's poem is by Brian Turner from his book, Here Bullet. The poem is called How Bright It Is. April, and the air dry as the shoulders of a water buffalo. Grasshoppers scratch at the dirt, rub their wings with thin legs, flaring out in front of the soldiers in low arcing flights, wings a blur. The soldiers don't notice anymore, seeing only the wreckage of the streets, bodies draped with sheets and the sun, how bright it is, how hard and flat and white. It will take many nails from the coffin makers to shut out this light, which reflects off everything. The callous feet of the dead, their bony hands, their pale foreheads so cold, brilliant in the sun. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>